If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. In 1949, the notorious Nazi doctor Joseph Mengele, known as the Angel of Death, fled to South America. Three decades later, US lawyer Gerald Posner set out to track him down. What followed was a remarkable tale of dogged persistence and lucky breakthroughs, as Posner's search brought him face-to-face with both Nazi operatives and members of Mengele's family, and even spilled into his home life with his partner Tricia. Matt Elton caught up with Gerald to find out more. Gerald, thank you so much for being with us today. We're here to talk about your involvement in an extraordinary episode of 20th Century History, and we'll get on to some of your role in the story in a little bit. But before we do, I thought it was worth setting out some background to this, because we're here today talking about Joseph Mengele, who some people might have heard of, some people may not be so familiar with. Could you very briefly, to start with, talk about who he was and his role in the Nazi Holocaust of the Second World War? Yeah, I mean, uh, Joseph Mengele was a, uh, a Nazi doctor who went to uh, one of the, the largest Nazi extermination and concentration camps. And while he was there, he did two things that he's notorious for. One is experiments on children, mostly twins, all types of human experiments. And uh, the other was that he would be at the front of the camp when the trains arrived, packed with people who were being shipped from all over Nazi-occupied Europe, mostly Jews, and he would point to the right or to the left to life or death as he selected the people who would live and die. So, you know, he wasn't the only Nazi doctor at Auschwitz, but he became the most notorious for his zeal, his enthusiasm and his gruesome work, and for then escaping after the war and and staying a, a fugitive for so many decades. And it's that escape that we'll talk about in a bit. Before we do, though, you mentioned there that even among high-ranking Nazis, he was notorious. Was there a sense that his crimes were particularly worthy of attention once the war had finished? There were a lot of Nazis whose crimes were particularly worthy of attention when the war finished, but there was a limit as to how many could be brought to justice. There were 50,000 Nazis who were at the camps in different positions, from guards to doctors to overseers to commandants. About 2,500 end up getting tried, which means thousands returned to their normal lives after the war without paying any price at all. In Mengele's case, 
one of the things that made him unusual is not just that he got away, but the zeal with which he did his work. And what I mean by that is it may be hard for people who haven't looked at World War II, but not every Nazi who went to a concentration camp to serve liked the work. Some were sadist and they enjoyed it. Some were pathological and they enjoyed it. But for many, it was not considered a great assignment. It was out in Poland. The winters were freezing. The summers were were hot. That was bad for the prisoners, but also the, those who were at the camp. There's a Dr. Kremer who was there a year before Mengele arrived, who wrote a diary and said, you know, this is terrible. We get infected with the very same diseases in the camp. We have problems with typhus. No one likes us. We don't get extra pay. Now, that's hard to imagine. I don't mean to say anyone should feel sorry for the Nazis, but some of them didn't like it. That's not the case with Mengele. He relished it. He viewed it as a step up in his career. He went to Auschwitz in part because the professor that he admired so much in Nazi anthropology recommended it. And he viewed it as a way to sort of make a name for himself. And he volunteered for extra time in picking those who would live and die. That's something that a lot of the, the doctors hated. But Mengele said, give me more time doing that. And what was the situation for high-ranking Nazi officials as it became obvious that the war was coming to an end? Well, it, the, the one thing that was clear, it, it collapsed. Although you look back at the war and you think to yourself that after D-Day, when the Allies have arrived in 1944 and they're, they're coming up through Sicily and the war is going badly and the Russians have turned back the Nazis earlier at Stalingrad and they're moving into Europe, that the Nazis would have realized it was over. But they were diehard zealots in many cases, and they didn't. And when it collapsed, and started to collapse very quickly at the end of 1944, they had two main goals. One was to cover up their crimes. So at Auschwitz and at other camps, they destroyed the evidence of much of what had been the mass murders. They destroyed the, the gas chambers. They tried to destroy the crematoriums. They couldn't destroy it all. There was too much. And then they wanted to escape. And escape meant one thing. That was heading west, meaning that you, wherever you were, if you were in Poland at a concentration camp like Auschwitz, you didn't want to stay there because the Russians were coming. And the Russian troops had a reputation for being brutal because the Russians had suffered 20 million dead in the war. The terrible price they had paid in the Nazi invasion, they were coming back with a vengeance. So you wanted to escape completely. But if you couldn't escape, you'd rather be caught by the British or the Americans. And Mengele, in fact, was caught twice by the Americans and let out, as, as many others were, in the great displaced millions of people after World War II. This is one of the extraordinary things, is that I didn't realise that he spent four years in Europe after the end of the war, before he escaped to South America. How was he able to stay in Europe for such a long time? The real question is, if I hadn't studied this subject, I would have said, it's, it's just remarkable that somebody as notorious as Joseph Mengele could be in Germany just under a false name, but that nobody's following his family or anything else to find out that he's there. You actually discover when you look into it that that wasn't so unusual. You know, the chief pharmacist from the camp, for instance, Victor Capetius, had, had stolen gold from the mouth of corpses and went into West Germany after the war and opened up a new pharmacy. People went back to normal lives in many ways. People like Mengele were one notch under that. He knew that he was wanted. So he stayed in Germany expecting that eventually what they, the Nazis, viewed as this frenzy would pass. The Allies, the British and the Americans, would leave their occupied zones in Germany. They would return control of the country to the Germans, the West Germans. And the West Germans would say, what terrible thing. 
World War II, horrible. We're so sorry what happened, but let's get on now with fighting the Cold War. We're worried about the Russians who control half of Berlin and that. And so that would pass. But what changed for Mengele was that in 1948, the British had the doctor's trials. They put on a number of people that he knew, some of whom he had served with as physicians in the concentration camp, and they were being sentenced in some cases to death in some cases to long prison sentences. And at that point, Mengele and his family say, you know what, this isn't going to end. I've got to get further away than Germany. And they decide to send him to South America. And people may not know this either. Why South America? Why was that such a popular destination? South America was a popular destination, first of all, because it was far away. <laughs> so you don't want to be near the place where you might be caught. But the other thing was, it was particularly sought after because it, although Argentina, which was the country that most of the Nazis went to, was technically neutral in World War II, it was really the largest Nazi listening post for intelligence outside of Europe. And Juan Perón and Eva Perón, anybody who's seen the Evita plays, they were very pro-Nazi. They accepted Germans. There was a large German community inside of Argentina. And that part of the German community that was in South America thought that the Germans had been punished too much after the war. They had paid what they called victor's justice. The Allies won the war. They put all of these Nazis on trial for war crimes. And if it had been the other way around and Germany had won the war, maybe they would have put on trial the British pilots who firebombed Dresden and the American pilots who dropped the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Of course, that's not a moral equivalency at all, but that's how they justified it to themselves. So when people like Mengele and other big Nazis arrived in Argentina, they weren't arriving in a vacuum in a country where there was nothing. They were arriving in a country where there was already a network of neo-Nazis, pro-Nazi sympathizers, and a large German community that was willing to welcome them. And he stayed in South America for decades, which is another remarkable aspect. Was it this network that allowed him to move around so much and have so many different types of life? The first 10 years that he's in South America, which runs from 1949 to 1959, and then is capped in 59 in by the Israelis uh, kidnapping Adolf Eichmann, who is sort of the bureaucrat who ran the trains to the concentration camps. They kidnapped him in, in Buenos Aires, outside of Buenos Aires, the Argentine capital. That changed everything for Mengele. But for the first 10 years, he didn't need the Nazi network. What I mean by that is he arrived with some money. The Mengele family had money. The Mengele's had a farm machinery manufacturing company. I was in Germany in the early 80s and remember seeing tractors with the name Mengele emblazoned across the front in steel letters. It's rather remarkable to see. They were the largest employers in their small town in Gunsberg. And so when he, Joseph Mengele, fled Europe and went to South America, he had enough money from his family to actually have a pretty comfortable lifestyle. And over a period of a few years, he started to feel as though the hunters, the Nazi hunters, the Americans, the British, the others who were looking for him, weren't that interested. So much so, he was so confident of this that at one point in the mid-50s, he walks into the West German embassy in Buenos Aires and says, by the way, my name is not really Helmut Greger. That's the fake name that he had arrived on a fake passport in 1949. My real name is Joseph Mengele. I'd like a passport in my real name. And nobody in the West German embassy said, you're a German, 
at the right age for somebody who served in World War II. You're living here in Argentina and you arrived under a fake name and you're asking for this name. I'll check to see if it's on the wanted list. It's a remarkable bit of incompetence and apathy that allows him to spend time in Argentina with in great style and in great comfort. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Now, there's two things there. One is that the brazenness to do that is extraordinary. And also, do you put it down to sort of ineptitude and lack of joined up thinking that meant he was able to do that? Yes, I, the, there are two things. I mean, on the one hand, we look at it and we say how brazen Mengele was. But I must say that Mengele lived in some level of concern, even in the 50s, that if nobody else was after him, the Israelis might be. That concerned all the Nazis in South America. They weren't as worried about the Americans and the British. Those trials were over. They thought the West Germans weren't that aggressive, but they were worried about the Israelis. So they didn't want to be too high profile. But it shows you how safe he felt in going into the West German embassy. And I do think that there was a level of general incompetence and apathy, but I also happen to think, and I looked at this, I spent a lot of time on this when doing my research, that the West German embassy itself had been penetrated by even Argentines they had hired who were in fact Nazi sympathizers. So that some of the Argentines who went to work for the German embassy were willing to look the other way if someone like a Mengele came in. And it's almost impossible decades later to try to establish that chain of evidence to show where which person shoved his application through without giving it a second look. But it is uh, astonishing that the man, in this case Mengele, this Nazi fugitive that later came to symbolize the person who was free and staying one step ahead of all of his hunters, felt so comfortable that not only did he get a legal document in his real name, but a couple of years later in 1958, He's listed in the Argentine phone book in Buenos Aires under his real name, which is remarkable. All you needed to do was know which city to look in and you would have found the name of Mengele there. 
It is remarkable. We should talk about your involvement in this story. At what point did you become involved in this and, and why did that happen? I became involved actually in 1981. I was a lawyer in another life, it seems like, but at that time I was practicing law and I had just gone into a small practice, left a large law firm, went into a small practice in New York City in Manhattan. And a friend of mine called who worked at the Justice Department and he said, you know, we, meaning the the US government, the Department of Justice had been approached by a couple of twin survivors of Auschwitz. They were twins who had been experimented on by Joseph Mengele when they were children in the camp. And they were inquiring about whether we, the Department of Justice, might bring an action against the German government to try to find Mengele, because at that time, everyone thought Mengele was alive, 1981. He said, we won't do it, we can't do it, but maybe you as a lawyer want to donate your time, volunteer your time to help these twins. And I met Mark Berkowitz, his sister Francesca, but Mark was a driving force, and he wanted two things. He wanted money from the German government just to pay for his medical bills for the thousands of dollars of years and expenses that he spent in trying to heal the pain from what Mengele had done to them when they were back at the camp. And we found about 100 twins that were then alive. Of the 2,500 sets, 5,000 twins that Mengele had experimented on in his own records, about 100 were still alive in 81. And I brought an action in federal court, tried to sue the Mengele family for supporting him on the run. And we were thrown out of court. The court said, you have no evidence of the Mengele family supporting the fugitive, which at that time I couldn't produce. And they rejected the the claims for compensation because they said, of course, look, you're asking us, an American court, to try to resolve an issue done in Poland in World War II by a German officer who's now missing. You know, no thank you. But it sort of kicked off a passion in me, and I kept then pursuing the what I thought was the case against uh, Mengele and trying to determine where he was. I was convinced he was alive. Only later would I determine he was already dead by then. You've written in the past that it was this idea that he was living his life in freedom that lit a fire under you. Was it just that sense of injustice that motivated you to follow this for so long? The great thing about whether you're a social justice lawyer or whether you're a, an investigative journalist, there's nothing that quite gets you focused as the idea that somebody, some evildoer or wrongdoer has not just gotten away with it, but is really enjoying the spoils of what they did. And that was certainly the case with Mengele. I was convinced at the time that he was living the high life, that he was probably hiding in Paraguay under the the dictator at the time, Alfredo Strassner, a long-term military strongman. We knew that Mengele had gotten Paraguayan citizenship in 1960 when he first fled from Argentina under the name Jose Mengele. Not very good to throw off the hunters, but it worked. And the feeling was that he was hiding somewhere out in what's called the Chaco, this great western region of Paraguay that's very isolated, maybe down in the southeast, a a heavy German area around Hohenau. There had been sightings of him over a period of time. And there were these books that had come out. There were movies about Mengele made, essentially, the Marathon Man, Boys from Brazil, in which the common perception was that he's hiding somewhere in the jungle, surrounded by, you know, killer dogs and armed guards riding around in a Mercedes limousine and being funded by his family. And that image of the fugitive is one of the reasons he got away, because instead of doing that, 
he was actually living a very low life. He had gone into the poorest parts of Brazil. He'd gone into the poorest barrios outside of Sao Paulo. He wasn't the superhuman Nazi fugitive living the Hollywood version of a Nazi existence. He was the Nazi who was doing anything to survive, and, and that kept him free in many ways. We should talk a bit about the motivations of some of Mengele's survivors. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, it was in conversation one after another that I would have with them. They never were interested in vengeance. They never talked about the price that he would pay if he was caught. They wanted to know what he had done to them at the camp. And I know that's hard to imagine. They knew that he had injected their eyes, for instance. They knew that he had done these spinal taps without any pain procedures, that it's sometimes amputations. They didn't know what it was for. Was it for sterilization? Was it to unlock the mystery of twin births so that German mothers could have more children after the war? Was it to turn dark eyes blue? Because Mengele didn't leave medical records behind. He had the reasons for those experiments locked in his own head. The only way they might find out what had been done and how to treat themselves today as a result of what had been done is to find out what he had injected into them, what he had done, and what the purpose was. That was the mystery that he was holding for them and uh, something I had never expected until I started to talk to them. So amid all this sort of hype and this mythologization, how did you go about finding out more? The great thing I think about being new to a field of investigation is thinking, sometimes delusionally and sometimes correctly, that you can get things that nobody else has gotten before. Yeah, you know, they say insanity is doing the same thing, uh, expecting a different result. Well, you know, maybe journalism is in part that or, 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 or lawyering. You go and you ask the same question. And what I mean by that is there had been stories People knew that Mengele had been in Argentina, but nobody knew the details of his period to stay there. The Argentine government, which was run for nearly 15 years by a military junta, had been asked repeatedly by the U.S. Justice Department, by the Israelis, by the British, by the West German government for its Mengele file, and they always just ignored the request. I went down in November of 84 for my first trip to Buenos Aires, and part of good research is sometimes the luck of timing. It was not long after the Falklands War, the Malvinas War, as they call it in Argentina. The military hunt had been thrown over. There was a new civilian government in power. Raul Alfonsin was the, the president of the country. The country was going through a spasm of democracy. I would like to say I was smart enough to realize this was the time to apply, but it wasn't. It was just the time I happened to be there. And I went to Casa Rosada, which is the equivalent of 10 Downing or the White House, where the presidential palace is in Buenos Aires. And I asked for the Mengele file, and I made a request in writing, and I told talked to an assistant there who was new in their Justice Department, and then I sat in Buenos Aires doing other interviews for about three weeks in a downtown hotel called the El Conquistador. And one night at about 11 p.m., got a knock on the door. Tricia, who was with me, my wife, had gone back to New York. Somebody had to pay the bills, and there were two members of the Argentine Federal Police there, and they said, come with us. And outside was a blue falcon which is not a good sign because I learned very quickly the Blue Falcons is what they had taken away their political prisoners with that disappeared, as they called them in Argentina for years, put me in the Blue Falcon. I was able to make a call to Trisha before I left to let her know I was going to, with the federal police in case. And they took me down to the headquarters and there was a very grumpy colonel, he turned out to be in front of me, who I didn't know what was happening until I realized he had been ordered by the civilian government to open up their Mengele file. And they took me to a side room and there... In front of me on a desk was a file folder that literally was a treasure trove of history. It opened up 10 years of Mengele's 
life on the run, his entry into the country, his false passport that he had traveled with, his application to the West German embassy, the businesses that he had in a pharmaceutical company for a while, his marriage to his sister-in-law, all laid out there. Six weeks after I had gotten access to that file, a British journalist applied to see the same material and was told no. The government had gotten its ability through the federal police to realize they don't have to say yes to everything and close the door. So there was a window there in which you could get the documents. And I'd like to say I took advantage of that, realizing that would be the case, but I didn't. And that's the nature of sometimes being fortunate. And But that led me to Paraguay and everywhere else. I knew what to ask and look for. So I was able to compile this life on the run of Mengele, except for the last part, the most important part, where he was in Brazil. Before we get on to that, I just want to talk about this a little bit more, because as you've sort of established, this is a search, a hunt that's being conducted by governments internationally. It's massive in scope. What did it feel like for you to be able to make this breakthrough amid all that backdrop? I have an unusual view of it because the real expectation was that if Mengele was alive, you're going to come up with a credible bit of evidence of where he might be and turn it into authorities. So getting the 10 years about what he had done from 1949 to 1959 was very useful. It wasn't useful in finding him today. So looking back on it, now knowing that he was already dead, yes, I understand the importance of that. But at that point, it was just a tool to be able to see if you could get somewhere else. I was still stuck back in 1959. That's as far as the documents took me. I wanted to be up to 1981, 1982. And so that was the difficulty. I was focused on talking to those people that I thought had some information about where he might be. That was much more. I, I know it's hard to imagine that I wouldn't be more excited at that, but uh, if that makes sense. No, it does completely. And, and who were some of the people that you spoke to during the course of this research? Who did you interview? There was a, um, an assistant to Adolf Eichmann, who was never charged for war crimes, who was in Buenos Aires, called, what a name, Wilfred von Oven, true. And he was putting out a, a right-wing neo-Nazi newspaper that had a small circulation. I was convinced that he knew where Mengele was. And I spent a lot of time around the edges and trying to get some information from him, but got nowhere at all in the end. He would regale you with pictures from Miss Nazi contests. Yes, true. They existed down there at the time. Uh, things like this in this little Fourth Reich. There was a, a, a Stern reporter, Herbert John, who spoke fluent German, spent a lot of time in South America, was a tremendous font of information. And I spent a lot of time with Herbert John. The problem with him was he knew people and he had some great information. And he also had a bit of the showman in him. And he would add a little bit to the story. So he wouldn't just say, I know a doctor inside of Asuncion, who thought they saw Martin Bormann, Hitler's deputy, 10 years ago, he would say, I saw him too. And so it was always a process of figuring out what John was really telling you or not. I was dealing with a police captain at the time, Erdik, uh, who um, was uh, connected on a hunt to Nazis. He later claimed that he had killed Mengele, so that didn't turn out to be very true. So one of the things I found out, Matt, is that in South America, and you have to really put your antenna up for this, there is an industry in what I call tales about Nazis. So if you arrive as a journalist or you arrive as an attorney looking into a case and you say, I'm interested in finding Joseph Mengele, people come out of the woodwork. They say, oh, 
Joseph Mengele, I knew him. I used to go bowling with him. Oh, he was friends with my child. He taught my uh, child how to speak German. There are some tremendous tales, and they just don't turn out to be accurate in the end. And that's an unfortunate part of it. So you have to weave your way through a minefield of people who aren't asking for money. So this is interesting. They just want, today we're accustomed to it. People put up crazy TikTok videos because they want a million views or whatever. Back then, before the internet and social media, you thought people either wanted money, but they still wanted a bit of fame. They had lives that were somewhat mundane, and maybe by associating with a Nazi war criminal that made them for a moment seem as though, and you were, you were taking them out for dinner and talking to their family. So I would say that two-thirds of the information that I probably pursued over a period of time in Paraguay and in Argentina turned out to be, would have been a great novel for somebody, but wasn't useful for finding uh, what happened in Mengele. You must tell me if I'm jumping ahead by asking this, but at what point did you realise and did the world realise that he was in fact dead? Not until 1985, when we, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, by that time, in the end of 1984, I signed a, a book deal for a biography on Mengele, together with a British journalist, John Ware. We were halfway through that manuscript, and we would have been wrong about Mengele being alive when suddenly one night, uh, about 4.30 in the morning, uh, we got a call on our home phone, Trisha and me. Trisha answered the phone. It was a German reporter. And he said, uh, you know, I'm trying to reach Mr. Posner. Does he know that they have found bones in Embu, Brazil, that they think might belong to Joseph Mengele? And Trisha said to me, that it's a German reporter. They think they found Mengele's bones. And, and I said in this half-sleep, Yes, junk. I said, they've, it's like the 12th time they found them because they kept every time the hunt would pick up, some Nazis would pretend that Mengele's grave had been found or that he was dead and that would stop the hunt. My initial reaction wasn't, oh, yeah, so fantastic. I was convinced, no, it wasn't true. And then, of course, I spoke to him and I was off to go to Embu a day later and the entire view of what had happened started to change. And, and how did that change how you approached the project? So again, you know, a bit of serendipity. I would have been able to, at that stage, change the portion of the book about how Mengele got away from 1960 and on by reports in the rest of the media. Stern, BBC was covering extensively, The Telegraph, everybody else. But here's where the, what I call a bit of good fortune, like that happened to me in 1984 when I was in Buenos Aires and got the Mengele file, there had been articles and some news pieces before that talked about the fact that I had the largest private archive at that time on Mengele, some 25,000 pages. And when I was in Embu in Brazil, going over with the forensics pathologist, whether these were really his bones or not, or was it a fake grave, Mengele's only son, Rolf, shows up at a publisher in, in Germany, a Bunta, it's sort of like a know, a generic, not hello magazine, but, uh, you know, like a people hello, a bit like that, not a hard news magazine, and says, uh, here are the, the thousands of pages of my father's personal diaries on his years on the run and letters and correspondence that he sent to me. You're allowed to publish it. I don't want any money. If you have an increased circulation from this, you can uh, go ahead and, and make a donation to a, a survivor's group. And Bunta's first reaction was, that's fascinating if it's true. And the reason they say if it's true, many listeners may not realize that 
the media world had been burned only a few years earlier on the so-called Hitler diaries, when somebody came up and said, we have diaries of Adolf Hitler. And not just did they fool a publication, but they fooled you, Trevor Roper, who was the third chair at Reich, uh, you know, Cambridge. They fooled the greatest historian, British historian on World War II, said, yes, they're real. And when they turned out to be fake, all the German magazines said to each other, never again. We will never be duped by some Nazi fake files. And so here the bones are found in Brazil of this Nazi fugitive that everybody thinks is alive. In comes the only son with all these documents, which supposedly will show that he's really dead as well and what he was like. And it looked like a one-two fake punch, if that makes sense. So my first reaction was, I wonder how much of that is fake that they had. The only reason I was able to find out is Bunta decided to have the papers tested by the equivalent of the German FBI. Look at the dates of the papers. It really is old. It's supposed to be. Look at the handwriting. Is it Mengele's handwriting? Try to determine that. And then they brought in a panel of historians, German historians, British historians, Norman Stone, who had replaced you, Trevor Roper, and others. And I was the only non-historian on the group. They reached out to me when I was in Brazil at Embu for Mengele's grave. And they said, will you come back and sit on this panel? And I did that. And in Munich, every day for two weeks, we grilled Roth Mengele, the only son of Joseph Mengele, about how did you get these, when did you see your father, what the story was. In the end, those documents were real. And I later went back to the son and said, by the way, all those documents that I've seen, I've gone over that you gave to Bunta that they took excerpts from, can I use it in the book that I'm doing with John Ware? And he said, yes. Again, no cost, no price, no charge, anything else. I'm convinced without a doubt that if I had not been part of that panel put together by Bunta and he had met me as one of their experts determining the validity of his father's diaries, I would never have gotten even a response from him. And you ended up meeting him several times, I believe. What was your impression of him and what was his view of his father and I suppose the world more generally? Initially, a couple of things, because my view of him changed a bit over time. In America, at least, and I think it's a little bit in the UK, not as bad as America. In America, you sit down with some stranger at the bus stop next to you, and the next thing you find out is they just had hernia surgery or something like that. They start talking to you about personal things. They often, you know, how are you? How's the day? And they take the question seriously, and they sort of then tell you everything. That's not the case in Germany. Certainly wasn't the case in Germany in the early 80s. People much more restrained, not as effusive, not as emotional. So on top of that, he is the son of this notorious Nazi criminal in a very uncomfortable position where he's being grilled essentially by historians, by me and others, looking for holes in his story to see if it's somehow it's a fake story. And he's recounting this. So the person that I initially met was very, very careful. Part of that might be his legal training very slow. And the other thing was some of the German historians like Gunter Deschner started to talk to him in German. But, and Norman Stone speaks German. I speak German well enough to order from a menu, but not well enough to have a conversation with the only son of Joseph Mengele. So for me and some of the people from Bunta, they switched to English. Rolf Mengele's English is good, but it's his second language. So I think that also built in a hesitancy at times as he's answering questions. So I always found him to start with very, very careful, very apologetic 
for being Mengele's son, condemning his father's actions at the camp. And I did meet with him subsequently in Germany and in the U.S. And when I say my view changed of him, I came to believe that he was having the best of both worlds. And what I mean by that is he had done his duty for his father, who he didn't really know, met him once as an adult, father who was terrible to him in these letters sent over decades about why he wasn't smarter and better and functioning better, a father he really didn't like, who he had come to believe had committed all these terrible atrocities at Auschwitz, but the family said no one breaks the silence, no one turns him in, and he followed that rule. Then, when his father died, it turns out in 1979, he kept the secret. He didn't come out and say to the survivors, to the twin that I had met in 1981, by the way, you're wasting your time. You're looking for a ghost. Don't worry about looking for my father. He's dead. At least then have given some closure to those survivors of the concentration camp who wanted to bring him to justice. And then he was making himself feel good about his own conscience by giving his father's papers to a publication. Yes, that was great. Fantastic that we were able to get that picture. I don't mean to say to minimize that, but at the same time, I came to criticize him for not having turned his father in and not having at least told the world that he was dead. To his credit, to Rolf's credit, to the very last time that I spoke to him, decade, 15 years ago, he always kept the same position, which is even to this day, he would not turn his father in, which is pretty remarkable, given that the, the cheap answer, the easy answer would be to say, you know what, I knew he was a terrible person, but I didn't realize the extent of his crimes until after I met with the survivors. And now that I know how horrible he was at the concentration camp, I would have turned him in. Nobody could prove otherwise, but you no, know, he still sticks to that position that he's the son and he wouldn't have changed his mind. It's a tremendous quandary, a moral quandary. I've watched clips of you on talk shows in the 80s and th there was a huge, a huge furore around this discovery, around the discoveries you had made. What did that feel like? And did you feel like it was distracting away from any aspects of the story? No, I, I think that at the time you very much go along with how the story is breaking and developing. You can't, the one thing I, I didn't know this, nobody had taught me this, but I, I learned it. It was a very good first lesson is you can't control the story. You might think you have something far more interesting and maybe it is. I mean, for instance, we have a process similar to what you have in the UK in a different way, but we have a freedom of information request where journalists and others can ask for documents from the government. I had asked for documents from the government back in, in 81 and gotten files from the US Army that showed that Mengele had been captured twice by the US Army and released. Those files came out in a release to me, freedom of information. I thought that was far more significant at the time than the files I got from Argentina in some ways, but people didn't pay a lot of attention to that. It was old news, and that was completely forgotten by the time that, you know, the bones were found in Brazil. So you realize that the, the story is what has happened at that moment, and that clearly became the crux of what happened. Remember also, we, meaning John Wareham, myself, we were still writing a book, and we published that book in, in 1986 and had the benefit of getting it right, because we had waited long enough on the book to know the entire story. And there were people who thought, by the way, the one reaction that was most disappointing was many survivors refused to believe he was dead. And I understand that. One said to me in so many words, I'm paraphrasing, 
it wasn't Mark Burkowitz, it was another survivor said, look, we saw him at his diabolical, most evil self. He was this godlike figure to us. He controlled life and death in the camp. So if you say to me that the chance is only one in a million, that it's not Mengele based upon forensic pathologists, I'll believe then it's not him because he's capable of anything. So most of them refuse to believe it. But many people who weren't survivors were disappointed that the ending was that he got away. And I was disappointed. Many of us were disappointed with that. The feeling was, you know, I often hear this, well, what would a trial have done? You put him on trial, it's not going to bring any justice. Well, that's true. But we know from the trial of Adolf Eichmann, who was the bureaucrat the Israelis caught, you add to the historical record so much information. And what was particularly infuriating about Mengele getting away with it was that he was unrepentant. Until his dying days, he never was sorry for what he had done at Auschwitz. When he met his only son two years before his death, when he, Mengele, was 66 years old and his son Rolf was 33 and took a trip to South America, when Rolf confronted him about Auschwitz, hoping to hear, oh, by the way, I, you know, it was a terrible place. I'm, I, I had to do it. It was orders. He said, you know, essentially, you'll never understand what we were trying to accomplish there. Don't ask me about that. He closed the subject off. And the reason that I personally would have relished the idea of him on trial is because for all the Holocaust deniers, for those people who say, oh, it never happened, there was no gas, uh, it's really not true, for the David Irvings of the world who like to create mischief time and time again on the Holocaust, uh, the British historian, revisionist, Mengele would have been a clarion, clear voice of what took place without any apologies. He would have tried to defend his work from the mouth of somebody who was there who was a zealous doctor doing experiments in Nazi ideology and Nazi racial theory, you would have had it laid out from his own mouth. And that, I think, would have been incredibly important. What's your take on this story, on Mengele, on his survivors, I suppose, decades on from your initial research? The survival of Mengele, the fact that he dies of natural causes swimming off the beach outside of Sao Paulo in 1979, what it is is an indictment of the people that should have been looking for him and failed to find him. And really, that comes down to the West Germans. There are a lot of people to blame. There's no question. But you had private Nazi hunters like Simon Wiesenthal and Tuvi Friedman and others who were looking for him. They were unable to. The Israelis, after they caught Eichmann in 1960, they closed the book on Nazis. They said, that's it. We, you know, we're worried about the survival of the state. They, you know, the Six-Day War was coming up in, in, in 1967. It was a different country. They, and the Eichmann trial had closed it. They didn't look for him anymore. But the West Germans could have broken this case with a simple mail intercept. And the reason I say that is Mengele was sending letters constantly, handwritten and typed letters back to his family. They were being kept by one of the senior executives in the Mengele firm, who the West Germans knew was a longtime childhood friend. If they had followed and put a travel notice on his son, they would have realized he was traveling under a false travel document. When he went to South America in 1977, they would have coughed up Mengele in two minutes. So this was not a difficult case to break, but nobody in the West German judiciary, in the prosecutor's offices, had the wherewithal or the passion or the desire to chase down this aging Nazi war criminal decades after the war and put him on trial in post-war Germany for these crimes. And that's unfortunate. I don't mean to say, you know, it was so simple, but the, his survival and the fact that he got away with it isn't because he was so remarkably clever, but because the, those who were looking for him 
just didn't have the sort of the the extra oomph and desire to make it a real investigation, unfortunately. They just lost interest, do you think? I think that is complicated for the West Germans because the one hand, uh, Germany and West Germany at that time, East Germany was fantastic because according to East Germans, there were no Nazis. Nobody in East Germany was a Nazi. <laughs> they, they were all anti-Nazis. And we know that's not true. But okay, so the West Germans did a great deal of confronting their past. They paid the money out. They, they looked for lost art. They, they still have struggled with this for a long time, more so than other countries. So they did try to cope with this. But they had a grand Auschwitz trial, as they called it, with 24 defendants in 1964. And just like the Israelis, I'm oversimplifying this, but got the Nazi fugitive World War II out of their system in a legal sense by the Eichmann trial, the Germans got out of their system with the great Auschwitz trial. And although they were looking for other Nazis, um, there was nobody that really wanted to bring the country back into those dark days again with someone like Mengele. Whereas I would have looked enthusiastically as a researcher, a lawyer, an investigator on Mengele in a courtroom admitting what he did they would have been horrified by it, not because they were in denial, but because it would have brought up the worst headlines, the worst coverage once again about Germany and the war. So, you know, they were looking to move on by early 80s. It was, you know, Helmut Kohl, Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan. Nobody was looking for Joseph Mengele on trial. That was Gerald Posner. He's one of the contributors to the rise of the Nazis, the manhunt which is set to air in mid-September on BBC Two. And you can read more about Gerald's experiences searching for Mengele, October issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. 